Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of New Books in Folklore. And today, my guest is Patrick B. Mullen, who's going to be talking about his book, Right to the Duke Joint, A Personal History of American Music. Patrick, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you, Rachel. Good to be with you. And can I call you Pat from now on? Because that's how I'm yes. used to calling you. Yes. And unusually for a new books interview, we're not doing this interview virtually, but I'm actually sitting in your office in your home in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is where the Ohio State University is situated, of which you are a professor emeritus of English and folklore and where I'm currently a PhD candidate. So that's why we happen to be in the same city. Yes. And this office looks very much like I might have imagined your office to look like. It's, although I must say it's tidier than I think than I. I, I might have. <laughs> and it's not that tidy. I don't think. I can't but... believe you. Oh, and just in the background, I should say that we're hearing Pat's wife, Roseanne, who's sitting in the beginning of this interview. But uh, it's full of books, many of which, or at least some of which, Pat's written himself, and lots and lots of musical stuff. So we've got pictures of various musicians and. Tons of LPs and CDs and various stuff like that, which is all very appropriate because this book is about your life in music. And I saw on the back cover, it's described as part scholar's musings and part fan's memoir, which seemed pretty apt to me. We're going to get to the book itself in a second. But Mm -hmm. first, I guess I wanted to ask you to help orientate our listeners to what to expect when hearing a folklorist talk about music, because I think... Sometimes people have quite narrow ideas of what folk music is. Mm -hmm. Do you have any kind of working definition of the music that interests you or? Um, I have a very wide view uh, because I've always been interested in popular music. Uh, You know, the first music that I heard um, when I was young was country music and uh, because I had an older sister who was a country music fan. Um, so that that was first. Uh, then I happened to be the right age to be there and a fan around the time of the invention of rock and roll. So I became a rock and roll fan. And, of course, country music was a strong influence on rock and roll, along with African-American blues music. And so... Being there and being a fan at the right age, you know, uh, junior high school age, maybe uh, 13 or 14, uh, I got interested in all of it at about the same time. And uh, so I started out as just this big fan of the music. Started My first record was an old uh, 78 RPM record. And they were pretty fragile, and it, I think it was uh, Bill Haley's uh, and the Comets, one of the first rock and roll songs, and I broke it. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my collection of 45 RPMs, because they were a little more flexible. I mean, you could actually 
fly them across the room <laughs> at night. And I would do that. I would you know, kind of throw them like a Frisbee or something. And they didn't break? They didn't break. I mean, you'd Why scratch you them up, that? but I don't know. It was just fun to do. Remember, I was a teenager. <laughs> so I've still got some of those old 45s. That's part of my collection. And then, you know, LPs came along, and I started buying them. And you can see there were racks of them of lots of uh, LPs up there. And I you know, started out being interested in rock and roll and blues, but it didn't take long to get interested in jazz and all the various kinds of American music. And so, yeah, look at my record collection. I have separate sections uh, on all of those things. And in fact, yeah, Roseanne just brought in some of the old 45s. Look at that. Oh, wow, that's amazing. It's a, it's a kind of... Um little square box just yes. filled with 45 look at what's on top records what i want you i need you i love you elvis presley yeah elvis <laughs> is on top of course i was a big elvis presley fan let me see what else is in there because that this will tell you something about my taste in music at the beginning of being a fan uh oh well i jump ahead in time here the next one after elvis Presley is The Clash. Uh, <laughs> the Clash was on 45? I had no idea. Oh, yeah. The, uh, uh, the record is called uh, Groovy Times on one side and uh, Gates of the West on the other. Oh, uh, here's some of my real old ones. King Records, Honky Tonk Part 1, Bill Doggett. That was an instrumental that I loved. So tell us about how this book came about. Rosanna, I think you had something to do with it, right? I certainly did. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you should tell the story. No, start it out, just because right. you um, you got me started. We went out to dinner one night. It was it was getting close to when Pat was going to retire. And he said, I've been thinking about what I might do next. And um, I'm thinking I might go back and look at my old field work that I did 20-some, 30 years ago and just evaluate it now from the perspective of the present. And I looked at him and I said... Why would you want to do that? You've already done that. I said, why don't you write about music and your life? And it just clicked. And he started on it the next day. <laughs> so now you can tell the rest. I got totally engaged by it. You know, getting out my old 45s, which we were just looking at, uh, playing them over again. And I, I started writing immediately, I think. Didn't I do it you in kind of? Outline. You did an outline. I, I did an outline, and then it was kind of in chronological order, going back to the first things that I heard in the when you were little. When I was little, in the in the mid and late forties, and then being there at the invention of rock and roll, and being a rock and roll fan right from the beginning. Being first of all, being an R and B fan, I uh, which was part of the the uh, background of rock and roll and then the country music like i said my older sister was a country music fan and it was just a, a kind of luck that i was there at the invention when all these various kinds of music came together and and something called rock and roll was invented and so later you know when i got to be a scholar and i was interested in this i thought I can write about this from a first-person point of view and make it kind of autobiographical because uh, my life as a fan is a context. And I'd already you know, done enough studies in folklore studies to 
recognize the importance of the cultural and personal context in order to understand the text and the music itself. And it worked. One of the things Pat struggled with is the whole genre because how do you combine memoir and scholarship? And so that was something you were really negotiating in the beginning, trying to hit just the right balance between the two and interweaving the two. And, I mean, you finally got it so that, you know, it really worked. But that was really different for him because he'd always done very straightforward scholarly kind of work. So how did you come to organize it? It's got, we've got eight chapters in this book. How did you manage to weave the two together? Well, I think because it was autobiographical, I kind of followed my own uh, history as a fan. And so the first thing that I'm writing about are that music that I heard, uh, the country music uh, and the early R&B. We were living in Beaumont, Texas and Southeast Texas and Beaumont was near the Louisiana border. So I grew up hearing Cajun and Zydeco, which is the African-American kind of French-related Cajun music, hearing rock and roll, um, hearing country music. Uh, and this was a lucky break in some ways. My father was in heavy construction. He worked for a company building refineries and chemical plants all over North America. And so since we moved around, I was hearing different kinds of regional music and that mixture. I, mean, I I don't think I realized at the time how lucky I was to be in a situation where I was hearing all these various kinds of music that did have relationships with each other. And if you were going to understand one, you had to understand the influence of all the other kinds of music. I would make friends with people, I'd be new, the new guy at the school and wouldn't know anybody. And as soon as I would meet somebody who had the same interest in music, there was a friendship was established. Like uh, Bob Schultz, remember? Did you ever meet him? Uh, this, th- this was in Delaware. Uh, we lived out in the country and I had to ride the, the uh, a school bus and one of the people that lived out there in the country, too, was this guy, Bob Schultz, my age. And we happened to sit next to each other in the school bus one day and found out we had this interest in the same kind of music. And that was a, a bond. Although I was struck by something that you wrote at some point in the book where you say a lot of your lifelong musical taste was shaped by the first seven years that you spent in Beaumont, Texas. Yes. Yeah, Beaumont... Uh, which is it, where we start yes. in the first chapter. They yeah. all go native on a Saturday night, which is subtitled <laughs> Civilized versus Native in American Vernacular Music. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I ran across that uh, concept in the in the scholarship, civilized and native, and I thought, oh, that fits perfectly. It's, uh, it, it's like these two uh, things in opposition to each other, civilized and native, and the going native, that was the name of a song that was a country song by uh, Red Foley. You were only seven. You didn't know what that yeah, meant. Yeah, right. I'd forgotten my age. Yeah, I was seven years old at the time when I heard this. And, of course, then put the theory on it later as a scholar. But it made sense. I mean, this is really fits. Native music and civilized music. And they all go native on a Saturday night. Uh, the Red Foley song. 
really said a lot about the music. It, it, part of the appeal was going native, kind of giving up your civilized demeanor and acting crazy and dancing and jumping around. And, and, and that was kind of part of the spirit of rock and roll and R&B and some jazz. Uh, so that was part of my interest. That was part of... And it was broadened. Uh, you know, as I got older and I started liking, I guess we'd call them more sophisticated music, and, you know, I became a Duke Ellington fan, for instance, and I just loved Duke Ellington music. And uh, and that, I mean, you know, he, would, he was influenced by classical music in some ways because he was doing these works of music and jazz that would be more like a you know for a concert with different movements <laughs> within a jazz composition. So got interested in all of that. Another thing you say about Beaumont is that it was also very important in terms of your understanding of the uh, African American vernacular music that you were hearing. It you were hearing everything through the context of race relations in Beaumont yes. from the time that you were born yes. onwards. So tell me a little bit about what that was like. Well. Uh, Beaumont was uh, segregated. There, uh, we lived in a neighborhood called South Park, and it was all white. Uh, total segregation. There was a railroad track that ran uh, from north to south, and it, it, it was like on one. It was like this. On one side of the railroad track, it was African-American. It was a black neighborhood on the other side of the railroad track, and everybody knew that boundary. And our contact with, you know, for white people, our contact with black people was mainly the uh, guy that would come and cut the grass, would be from the black neighborhood, and the woman who did ironing, Melissa, I still remember her name, uh, would would do the ironing, and she would come and she did the ironing for everybody in the family, for my grand, both my grandmothers on both sides, for the Mullen side and the Terry side, I, uh, and you know you had this kind of relationship, I, uh, and I learned more about the black side of the track because we would take Melissa home. She didn't have a car, so we'd go pick her up in the black neighborhood and bring her to work and she'd do the ironing for both grandmothers and my mother and then we'd take her back over to the and I was I mean it, it's it's something that in the scholarship is called the exotic other and so that was the exotic other I mean I didn't know that term back then as a, you know in, in at that age uh, later as a scholar I thought wow this fits you know that the African Americans were the exotic other and uh, so you had, part of it was stereotypical, and so there was a negative side of it, but there was also a positive side of it, where you saw this vital culture and this music coming out that was so appealing, and especially for me at that age. But at the same time, here I had my older sister, who was a country music fan, so I liked both. And I think... That was lucky for me in a way. If, if you know, later, uh, you know, I go to college, I go to graduate school, I get more interested in the study of American vernacular music, we can call it. 
And I start saying, wow, I have this, I've got a record collection that has the country music side, it's got the R&B, it's got jazz in it. Uh, at some point, I realized I can write a book. <laughs> Just based, and uh, it'll be scholarly. I'll do the research, I'll read about jazz and blues and the history and all that, but it'll also take on this personal perspective and it'll be, and I don't, I didn't even think about it as autobiographical at first, but then at some point I realized, wait a minute, this is autobiographical mm -hmm. and that works because this is this real context. I love this kind of the, the whole aspect of memoir that you've brought into this because you're, you're describing the appeal from the perspective of the 13 year old boy that you yes. then were. And you write about how uh, this black music was was kind of sexy music, even though you didn't really understand what was sexy about it, because you didn't understand any of the lyrics, <laughs> yes, really. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. In the second chapter, which is when you first really begin to uh, cover this race issue, it's called Yes, Indeed, Race Revival and Rock and Roll. And you say that um, from the late 40s, US music is a series of revivals. Can you tell us a little bit what you're talking about there? Yeah, I, uh, revival in the sense that the the uh, music was being rediscovered. It would be regional or at attached to one racial group, or it'll be regional, and then uh, it started to spread. Um, so you had people like Elvis Presley in Tennessee. And there's a regional quality to his early music, the hillbilly, but he was also one of the first to cross the border. Uh, he also had this interest in blues and R&B, and there's a difference there, I mean, between uh, blues. R&B was actually a later development and uh, where bands were added to the acoustic music and electric guitar becomes part of it. So Elvis was a really important figure. And I think at first he didn't get the acknowledgement as one of the central figures in the history of rock and roll because he was so popular and he moved so quickly into a Las Vegas kind of... Uh, showman, uh, and he got away from his roots. And I think that was a shame because his roots were really part of the invention of rock and roll. And so he was really important. And I was here again, I was lucky. We were back in Beaumont at some, you know, all, all, traveling all around the United States. But at some point we came back to Beaumont and I would listen to the black radio station and I was getting, uh, uh, Bobby Blue Bland, that kind of blues, which was a more of uptown <laughs> kind of blues that had grown out of the old acoustic blues, but more sophisticated, more jazz influenced. And I, I, I really felt lucky. You know, I don't know if I even realized that at the time, that I happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear a different kind of music that expanded my uh, understanding and my knowledge and made me a fan of all these different kinds of music. Um, then, because of my father's work, we lived wherever there was a refinery or chemical plant to be built, and he, he got jobs for me. And I started working as a laborer on these construction sites, and that was a new 
experience because I would oftentimes I'd be working with a black man like I did in New Jersey, right? We were right across the river from Philadelphia. And um, the guy that I worked with there introduced me to a new kind of blues that I hadn't really paid much attention to because he was a fan. He had talked about it. So I would go into Philadelphia and buy these records that he would tell me about. So there was another new kind of music of, of the kind of more urban blues that I hadn't really known much about because I had been interested in the kind of southern blues, rural blues that I'd grown up with. You talk quite a bit about how uh, the appeal of black music for white people in America is often to do with their perceptions that are informed by stereotypes right. and rather than by actual knowledge of how uh, African-American people are living their lives. So when you started to have more contact on a friendship and working colleague basis with African-Americans rather than just listening to their music and so on and so forth, how did that alter your perception of the music? It broke through the stereotypes. The guy that I worked with uh, in New Jersey was uh, not, uh, he didn't have an education. He had not gone to college. But he was a very smart, intelligent man. And that was so obvious that he knew, he taught me about the kind of work we were doing. And we would talk about all kinds of things. And, uh, it, you know, that's the first time I had kind of broken away from the stereotypes that I'd grown up with uh, and realized that this guy is as intelligent as, or, and more intelligent than lots of white guys I'd worked with. Was he the first black person you became a friend with? Uh, uh, probably, yeah, probably a friend. You know, I knew lots of black people. But that was in the South, and there just wasn't an opportunity to get to know them. That, that job uh, in New Jersey, I really got to know him, because he and I, we would talk all day long. <laughs> So I learned uh, about his life, and it gave me a new perspective on African-American culture. It, you know, I already had this interest in blues and rhythm and blues, and he would enter, He was also interested in jazz, so he was one of the people that influenced me to start listening to jazz. He would mention something, and I'd go buy the record. My brother and I would go into Philadelphia on the weekends to go to a movie, and the record store was right down from the uh, movie theater. And we'd always go in there and I'd buy some new records. And it, it, around that time that I uh, didn't just buy 45s, but I got LPs. And that was something new. So did this guy, did he ever suggest something that you then didn't like? Or did you like everything he suggested? I, I think I liked everything he suggested. He was a B.B. King fan, so that was that was one of them. I... Uh, I think I'd, I was already a fan of Big Joe Turner because he had had uh, R&B songs that crossed over and became part of rock and roll. Uh, but B.B. King I didn't really know about. And all of a sudden I found B.B. King and then I got to meet him. I met B.B. King. How come? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess this was, this was a later time and I saw that he was going to be playing at a club in Greenwich Village. And I went over into, into, uh, into Greenwich Village and got tickets uh, for the show. And when the show was over, I just walked backstage. I thought, oh, they'll probably kick me out. But I went backstage, and the door to his dressing room was open. 
And I just opened it, walked in, <laughs> and he was talking to some people about it. And uh, I said, I'm a big fan. He said, oh, come on in, sit down. And I was just amazed. I thought, wow, I'm sitting here with B.B. King. And one, there was a woman sitting, an African-American woman, and uh, I sat down by her, and she and I got into this long conversation, and she was an old friend, and she was telling me all about B.B. and what he had done. And so it, it was a great experience, you know, not, not only hearing him alive, but uh, getting to meet him. And then uh, years later, he came to Columbus, and he was doing a, uh, a show. And again, I went to back to the dressing room, knocked on the door, walked in. He remembered me and even called me by name. And I was astounded by that. I thought, oh, I know B.B. King. And he remembered me. So fandom became something new. It was like, I'm a fan and I know this guy. <laughs> in the third chapter, it's called Let's All Get Dixie Fried, Sexuality, Masculinity, Race and Rockabilly. And you, you start the chapter by kind of talking about this cool alienated outsider being part of the zeitgeist in the 50s and it's kind of borrowed from Jack Kerouac yeah and you describe how the models for you and your friends from a young age was was really the lyrics that you heard so you, you knew you should be fighting and and brawling and drinking in bars and yeah. kind of chasing women yeah. and that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. All, all of that as part of the music and the the cool factor the uh, this whole sense of uh, it, it doesn't have to just be being rowdy, uh, but with the beat generation and that influence uh, on us and on the music that we listen to. So there was kind of opening into jazz, which was cool and uh, hip. And so it kind of balanced out with this raucous rock and roll kind of stuff with by being a jazz fan. And it, it was... Uh, it, it was I mean, there's an intelligence in both kinds of music, but it was this coolness uh, of the beat generation and the jazz that was that I was introduced to at that time that had a had an appeal for me. So I started listening to, uh, you know, the, all these cool jazz musicians, and you know, I've still, you know, we're sitting in my study. I've still got all these records around by. Um, uh, Dave Brubeck and people like that, that, uh, you know, it was cool music and, and not the raucous kind of thing. But it, it didn't mean that I gave up on the rowdy R&B or the uh, rock and roll. It was just like, okay, I'm expanding uh, my interest. And you know, I look over there and I see Chulas Fronteras, uh, which was a movie about Mexican-American music. I was open I wanted to know more about music. And the film Chulas Fronteras introduced me to some Mexican... I'd heard Mexican music growing up because the radio stations, uh, these uh, very powerful radio stations that were just across the border that had uh, stronger signals than were even allowed in the United States. So you could pick up these Mexican radio stations and other places and you'd hear... Uh, Mexican music, and I got interested in that, and I loved it. So something like Chulas Fronteras uh, has a variety of things. Accordion music. I, I thought accordion music, that's kind of, you know, 
not cool. And then you hear this great accordion playing by people like Flaco Jimenez. And it's incredible. And it's influenced by blues and R&B, and, but it's combined with this kind of traditional uh, music from Mexico. It's just amazing. American music is amazing for all the different kinds of music that have influenced each other. And I was just lucky. And then, so part of this, I write about this in the book. Uh, I when, when we moved to uh, Ontario, in Oakville, Ontario, I had a record collection like nobody else had. And so pretty soon I became the DJ for the sock hops. And the what? I, Sorry, the what? Sock hops. Sock hops. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that would be a dance because like at least at Blakelock High School in Oakville, Ontario, uh, and I think this was broader than that, but uh, you're on the gym floor and you're dancing, so they didn't want you to, screwing up the floor, making marks in it, so you had to take your shoes off. And that was the sock up. You're dancing, but in your socks. So uh, since I had the best record collection, and I've still, one of these, yeah, here, this box of 45s, it's got a, a little handle on the top. This box goes back to Oakville, Ontario. Oh my goodness! I, I've still got it. I would carry uh, this can, this box with a handle full of forty fives, and I was the DJ. You were spinning those discs. I was spinning these discs and playing it, and people loved it because I because of my having lived across the United States and in Canada, I introduced them to music that a lot of the people hadn't heard, and I got I got to be um, aware of the dancing and okay, let's meet. I'll do a couple of these fast numbers and people can jitterbug and do it fast. And then I play the romantic uh, ballad kind of music and slow dance for a couple of times. I was really good. I was a really good DJ because I had a good knowledge of the music. And the kids loved it. So you really were the cool guy by that. But yes, I think I was in terms of having this awareness and knowledge of the music and the record collection. And the, nobody argued with me. I became the disc jockey for these dance all, every dance we had, and I also liked to dance. So I'd put on a record and jump off the stage. And Judy Brown was my partner usually. Uh, she, you know, we kind of had crushes each other, on each other. I wasn't really dating at that time. Uh, I think I started dating later than that. But she and I just loved to dance. And she picked up my, the steps that I had from the, the bop, it was called, uh, that I'd learned in uh, Baytown, Texas, and brought to Ontario. <laughs> and... You know, people would look at me like, what kind of... And, but Judy picked up on the steps, and we would do this kind of jitterbug, but it, it had a different kind of step because of that, uh, the bop being a big influence on it. So that was fun. The next chapter, it's called Blues and the Abstract Truth, From Blues to Jazz. So you've already talked a little bit about B.B. King, but you describe in the book your experience of encountering the music of Robert Johnson, but also of encountering Janis Joplin. So... 
tell us about some of your blues experiences. <laughs> well, Janis Joplin uh, was from Port Arthur, Texas, which was right next to, to Beaumont. And she went to Lamar Tech, the college that I was in in Beaumont. And she would drive up from Port Arthur for classes. She was uh, a beatnik, I guess, back you know back then. I uh, didn't fit it. She was different and knew it and played it up. And she became known for this. And so a character, you know, that, that every, you know, that other college kids knew that there was something different about her. And she got a reputation for was that. Was it good different or, or not good different? Um, it depended on who you were. Okay. I was open to this. In fact, I loved it. I, I thought... Uh, she was singing then and had a uh, there was a rock and roll band that she sang with and i loved her and i loved her music and but there were other people who were kind of shocked by her behavior because she dressed funny and uh was very outgoing and loud and uh but i liked her from the beginning and so i became a fan of hers and then late and then when I graduated from college, I uh, I went to first of all I went to North Texas State University, uh, and I you know I heard I heard jazz there because they have a great jazz program in the music department at North Texas, and I listened to a lot. I learned more about jazz. I'm just how lucky can I be here? <laughs> you know, going to you know hearing the hardcore R and B and rock and roll at Lamar in Southeast Texas and Beaumont, and then going to Denton, Texas. Where they had a jazz lab band, and I was hearing, I was hearing jazz, they, they had a uh, the lab band would rehearse uh, at lunchtime uh, in the cafeteria, and so you could go have your lunch and listen to them play. And then I went to all of their concerts because it was really good jazz, and so I, it expanded my knowledge of jazz because they were so good and had such great musicians. And so that was another, how lucky can I be you know, going to, I never, I didn't know that about North Texas State University until I actually got there and then it, heard all this music. Then I go uh, for my PhD to the University of Texas in Austin and there I am again in another great city for music. And Austin was just uh, developing the music scene and you could hear there again. You could hear country music. You could hear rhythm and blues. You could hear rock and roll, uh, conjunto, the uh, Mexican music. Um, so part of it was just luck, living in all these places that had great music and different kind of music that grabbed me once I was in that place, and and always dancing, you know, wherever it was. I just want to bring you back to Janis Joplin for a second because you didn't know her, but you went to hear her. And I, didn't you take your mother one time? Th that was later. My mother came to visit me in Austin, and we went to a Texas Folklore Society meeting. One of the organizers of this was uh, Francis Abernathy. Ab, even with the students called him Ab, he was a real strong influence on me. He was, I think, president of the of the Texas Folklore Society at that time. So we would have the convention, and you'd have papers. And then on the last night of the convention, he would bring in music, and he brought in Janis Joplin. She just, without a band, she just brought her guitar. And we were sitting at picnic tables, 
there, there was no stage. She was kind of at the end of the picnic table. I had invited my mother up to uh, from, she was living, I guess, still in Beaumont. And we we're sitting at one of the picnic tables and Janice Joplin was right, had a chair and her guitar and she was right in front of us. You could reach over and touch her. Uh, that's how close she was. And she sang some songs and my mother loved her. And uh, my mother was very just, she was uh, had always been very outgoing. And and so she reached over and touched Janice in the arm and she said, oh, I just love your music, honey. And it really, and Janice Joplin just was so pleased that my mother, an older person, <laughs> loved her music. And I was just beaming, of course. I thought, oh, this is a moment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The next chapter, chapter six, is titled, I Was So Much Older Then, The Folk Revival Into Rock and Roll. At various points in the book, you mentioned that you were not so much a big fan of the folk revival. You, you described the musicians that maybe uh, became famous during that era as folkies as opposed to folk yeah. musicians. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your impression of the folk revival. Well, the folk revival was mainly college-educated, and in a lot of ways it started in the... Ivy League. Joan Baez, I actually didn't like at first because she had this beautiful voice, trained voice, and I was used to the kind of rough and tumble Janis Joplin, uh, you know, or, or the African American blues singers. Uh, and I, I didn't like her at first. I thought, oh, this is too highbrow. That would be a term I probably used back then and it just seemed so far removed from the folk music that I'd grown up with the blues and the country music and all that and then gradually I started to like it I thought she's really good she's really sincere she sang some great songs and I became a fan it took a while because I had that prejudice against her and you know kind of being too high tone and I became a fan. And then that kind of opened up the folk, whole folk revival to me more. I became a fan of more of that than I had been before. And then in Chapter 7, it's really where you describe a lot of your musical encounters around this area in Ohio. You say that you came to Bluegrass late. And I think that was one of the musics that you were introduced to in a big way after yeah. you became a professor in the Ohio State University. That's, that's correct. I, I I knew about bluegrass, and, and I kind of liked it, but I wasn't a big fan. And it was because I hadn't really listened to it. And when I moved to Columbus, I'd been in uh, Buffalo, New York, at Buffalo State College, and I got the job here at Ohio State. I came to Columbus, and one of the things I found out uh, very quickly, was that this was a great bluegrass town. And especially on the south end of Columbus, there were some great bluegrass bars down there. Uh, the Bluegrass Palace was probably the best known one. So once I found out about that, I thought, well, I got to, you know, this, I'm not a big bluegrass fan. But I went down to the Bluegrass Palace and I heard it and it it grabbed me. I had not been a fan, and as, when I heard it live, and then bluegrass festivals in Columbus, uh, you know, in the summertime, outdoor bluegrass festivals, I started going to every one of them, 
it just grabbed me. I started by buying bluegrass records, uh, expanding my record collection to include another genre. And I'm still a bluegrass fan. I mean, it was a, a great discovery that I had just not been aware of, or, you know, I was aware of it, but I, but I hadn't really been a fan. And hearing it, I think hearing it live was what made the difference. Bluegrass Palace is no longer there. And that's a shame because that was, you could hear it live there. And it was incredible. One of my friends uh, was a photographer uh, and he went down there and took some great pictures of the Bluegrass Palace, you know, of people getting up and dancing to Bluegrass. And a lot of people don't realize that you can dance to Bluegrass, but here are these people that went, lived on the south side of Columbus and would go to the Bluegrass Palace, dance to it. I'm curious, um, you've, you've we've got, still got one chapter to cover, and that goes back to Texas, but you've talked about all these different types of music, and quite often people who have less expansive tastes might associate particular musics with particular people or particular viewpoints. You know, I quite often hear from my students, for example, oh, I hate country music. <laughs> and it's not that they hate really all country music, but they've got this perception about mm -hmm. what country music is and who likes it. Did you find, as you went through your kind of musical journey, this realisation that these stereotypes were there for a reason or conversely not obviously there for any reason? Uh, I think it was... Uh, uh, kind of class prejudice because the bluegrass fans were not as well off and so there was this kind of uh, condescension toward them because the, their neighborhood might not have been kept up as much and the homes I went into on the south side you know people might not have had the salary to make their house look nice but there were clean houses of course they were clean and there were good people and religious people and some religious some not there was a whole mixture and it was a lot more complex than the stereotypes of them would suggest but part of the stereotype was oh well that bluegrass music that's uh, that's that, that's that particular lower class and lives in this other neighborhood. And so there was a prejudice kind of built into it. And by going to that neighborhood and listening to the music and meeting some of the musicians and talking to them, uh, Lake Bricky was a barber uh, in Clintonville, and he was also a bluegrass musician. And I got to know him, and I recorded him telling stories and all that. He was highly intelligent man, a great musician, lived on the South Side. I mean, to me, it just kind of opened up another world that was as complex. The music was great, and the people were great. You know, I just met some wonderful people that I got to be friends with, um, and I still love bluegrass. It's funny, I noticed that at one point in the book, you're talking about how the lyrics of some of these musics that you like can be racist or sexist, and I'm sure there's many other ists it can be. <laughs> yes. But you say, ironically, as Nick Spitzer observes, American vernacular music itself undermines all the divisions that have been erected to keep us apart. This is because the music ignores the boundaries between class, race, gender, and sexual orientation, and produces instead a wonderful mixture of ethnic, regional, class, gender, and racial elements. And then you go on to list all the yeah. many different musics in which this happens. And then you say, James Baldwin has expressed this idea more 
eloquently than I ever could. Each of us helplessly and forever contains the other, male and female, female and male, white and black and black and white. We are a part of each other. Um, yeah, I that quote is one of my favorite quotes of all time. And, and I've always liked Baldwin and his writing. And he has those kinds of insights in, in his writing. So that really struck me as something that f fit the music, this uh, recognition of the diversity and how all these different genres have got their own uh, appeal, their own complexity, their own message. Uh, and Nick Spitzer is, he's a friend. I've, I've known him for years. And he, he's one of the writers, one of the folklorists uh, who knows folk music, who knows a lot of different kinds of folk music and has written some of the best uh, articles and books uh, about folk music because he has that openness to all these different genres. I mean, he did fieldwork in Louisiana with... Uh, he got to know uh, Zydeco and Cajun music uh, in ways that I thought only I knew. <laughs> and he comes from another, another part of the country, but he got he, he absorbs it when he goes into the, a, a, a culture in a different area. So speaking of Cajun and Zydeco music, you choose to come back to that in your final chapter. When I first started doing research, uh, I was doing research <laughs> on the shrimpers the shrimp boats and the shrimpers. And that was my big project for my dissertation. Uh, and I got that idea from Ab, from Francis Abernathy, who had also influenced me. Because I'd met, I ran into him at a Texas Folklore Society meeting in Austin. And he said, and I said, I'm looking for top, you know, for field work that I could do for my dissertation. He said, well, how about on the Gulf Coast of Texas? I said, of course. Why didn't I think of that? And so I just thought, okay, I'll go from Beaumont to Brownsville. I could have called the book Beaumont, Beaumont to Brownsville. Beaumont right near the Louisiana border and Brownsville right at the Mexican border. And I did it. I did my field work. I got in my car. I went down to Port Arthur, didn't know what in the hell I was doing. I had not really done much uh, field work before. I uh, and just went up to where the, I knew where the shrimp boats pulled up, and I started walking along the pier. And some guy was sitting mending nets. That's where my I didn't know what I was doing. I had no training as as a field worker, and I thought, okay, I'll go talk to him. And I went over and said, hey, you know, uh, can I talk to you a minute? And he said, oh, sure. And uh, he started. I started talking to him about it, and he started telling stories about you know being caught out in hurricanes in a strip boat and barely making it back into port. And I said, wait a minute. And I went and got the tape recorder. And I said, start telling that again. And that was it. That was the beginning of my field work. I had stumbled onto something and I thought, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go from Beaumont to Brownsville and stop at every shrimp port on the way and record whoever I happened to get. So I, I didn't know anything about methodology in terms of doing field work, but I would find where the docks were, where the shrimp boats pulled up, and do the same thing I had been done the first time just by accident. See somebody mending nets or a bunch of guys sitting around 
uh, talking and start talking to them and say, oh, is it all right if I go get my tape recorder? Everybody was very cooperative and said, oh, sure. And so I got all these incredible tapes of them telling their own stories, uh, being out in a hurricane, you know, when a hurricane hit or a bad storm and barely making it back into port and uh, all of their attitudes, all of their beliefs, all the superstitions. They were very superstitions. And I started reading up in anthropology on that and ran across a concept, anxiety ritual, that if you're in an, uh, a situation where there's anxiety and kind of fear of being hurt, or you, that's where ritual comes in to kind of give you some sense of control over that situation. I mean, it's, it's, it's not rational, but it gives the believer some sense of, I'm, I'm protected here. And how did music come into this, this research? Well, I thought at first I w would find some working songs. Well, that wasn't really a tradition. Uh, they didn't have songs that they uh, sang when they were pulling the shrimp nets into the <laughs> boat or unloading it, but... I heard lots of different kinds of music, and uh, as I went down the coast, I, I would go into different bars because those bars uh, uh, had uh, musicians and dancing. And so, you know, after I'd be out working during the day, I, I might go into a bar and hear different kind of music. And I heard music that I hadn't really heard before. I heard the Cajun music and the Zydeco in the Beaumont, Port Arthur area. And so I went down the coast. I started hearing Mexican music, and I liked it. The Conjunto, which is a, a kind of uh, ballad tradition, Mexican dance music. And so even though it, I had not set out to study music, I couldn't help but hear it uh, and then started documenting some of it. I got a tape recorder here. Why don't I record some of these singers? And so I did that. So I had this whole range of music from Beaumont to Brownsville and hearing Mexican-American music down in the Rio Grande Valley. So Patrick B. Mullen, to give you your full name, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but can you tell us what you're working on now or are you taking a rest at the moment? I'm still interested in music and I get ideas uh, about a paper or more research in music, but there's nothing specific right now. Right now, it's kind of an openness to different kinds of music. And I've been li listening. I mean, you can look around. I can, see, I can see it all. Oh, yes. I've got and, uh, and all the playback devices as well. There's different sorts of things to play your music on as well. So for now, I just want to thank you so much for taking part in this New Books in Folklore podcast, which is a podcast channel on the New Books network. And I want to wish you a lovely evening. And thank you again very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. It's you, uh, you ask some great questions and I've really enjoyed talking to you.